I'm Floyd Hughes, the pastor of Crossroads Community Church in Jefferson Hills. And although we as Christians come from different denominations and cultures, we all have one job above all others, share the gospel. To help make that easier for every Christian, I've written an evangelism series, three books on evangelism for the whole family. The first book, Evangelism Easy as One, Two, Three, is the book for adults. The second book, Evangelism as Easy as ABC, is the book for youth and children. I wrote it with my eight-year-old niece because she has a great perspective on talking to her friends about Jesus. And the third book, The Evangelism ABCs, is a picture book for smaller children. Each book is age-specific and not meant to be a way to get people into our buildings, but they're resources to help Christians do the most important thing that God has called us to do. Talk to the people in our circles of influence about the gospel. All the books are available in print or ebook format on Amazon today. Thank you for listening to Crossroads Community Church of Jefferson Hills. At Crossroads, our mission is to be the church by sharing and showing the love of Christ and inviting others to be recipients of Christ's love. Now, here is this week's message from Pastor Floyd Hughes. Welcome to our Sunday morning worship celebration where we love celebrating Jesus um, even when we have to have like tough discussions about tough topics, um, many of you parents are going to have to have tough discussions with your children as summer starts to draw to an end and you have to tell them they have to get ready for school and start going to bed at a regular time and that they can't sit around all day and have Cheetos and Twinkies for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But... Um, I want to start with some scripture this morning uh, because we're going to be talking about a tough topic and these three scriptures, actually series of passages of scripture that we're going to walk through are going to guide our conversation this morning. So we're going to start a little bit differently with a lot of scripture. First scripture is this from Romans chapter five. Paul is writing to the church and he says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is going to be key for this week and next week and the uh, next couple of conversations we have. And that we need to remember that while we were still sinners, while we were still separated from God because of our sin, that he sent his son to die for us. Paul goes on and says, since we have now been justified by his blood... How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? That's a whole separate conversation because all the people who think that we're going to have to go through the wrath of God, separate conversation. Here's the point, though. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Paul says that, hey, while we were sinners, right, we were enemies of God. Our sin made us enemies, and that word enemies, we've talked about it before, is a word that means that God literally should have gone to war against us. It's not a word like we think someone's our enemy because they let their dog poop on our grass or the coworker ate our lunch, you know, and we get mad and we think they're enemies and we make 
bad posts about him. This is a word that means literal enemies who you go to war with to take out. That's how God should have treated us. But while we were his enemies, he reconciled us to himself and he sent his son for die for us. So keep that in mind. That's going to be crucial this morning. Also, this is a passage of scripture that everyone is familiar with. We talked about it multiple times. How many people are familiar with uh, the Good Samaritan? Account of the Good Samaritan? Yeah, so this is what it says. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. That word expert in the law means someone who is, uh, was supposed to be teaching the word of God to other people, right? And he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, what is written in the law? He replied, that's Jesus replied, how do you read it? So Jesus took him back to the word of God. And here's what the man replied. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Jesus said, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, you will live. And it's not saying that you will like live physically because he was already alive. You will live eternally. You'll get to spend an eternity with God. But here's the next verse. He wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And that's what a lot of us do. When we're called to love someone else, we ask, well, do do I actually got to love that other person who does let his dog poop in my yard because it's been seven years and it's still happening? Do I actually have to love that person at work who plays their rap music to a lot? Do I have to love that person who keeps speeding through our neighborhood? We come up with justifications for who is our neighbor and who do we have to love. So Jesus, and we've talked about this before, I'm going to summarize it, gives this long analogy. And he uses, the reason we call it the good Samaritan is because he uses a Samaritan and a Samaritan is a person to that Jewish person who was supposed to be teaching the Bible who would have been an enemy to them. They didn't like them because of their race. They didn't like them because of their culture. They didn't like them because of their religion or their political differences. They hated them. In fact, there's one verse we're going to look at later uh, where it says that, if, 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 if there are dishes that we think they used, we wouldn't even go into a restaurant. If we walked into a restaurant and we saw a Samaritan walking out, hey, I'm going to leave because even though the dishes are washed, I don't even want to use those dishes. They wouldn't even go. They went out of their way to go around the town where Samaritans were from. So Jesus gives an example and says, hey, there were these two religious people that saw this guy who was robbed, and they just crossed the street and kept going, but the Samaritan took the time to help him, used his money, used his resources, and devoted himself to helping that person. And then Jesus says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And here's the thing. This is one of those things. Yeah, Jesus is giving an example, but this isn't just telling us. It's not just a description. It's not a prescription. It's a command from Jesus, go do likewise. We're supposed to go and show mercy to those people who are different culturally, politically, racially, and we'll talk more about that next week. But all of these people who have differences, we're supposed to show mercy to them. And then this final verse we're going to use before we jump into a time of prayer and just uh, song. Brothers and sisters, Paul writes to the church in Galatia, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit 
should restore that person, and here's the key word, gently. He says, we're supposed to restore them gently. He says, but watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. So if I'm, and I'm going to pick on Beth because she's like the nicest woman ever, but if I see Beth like going down some dangerous, dark road of sin, I'm supposed to restore her gently. I'm not supposed to call her out on Facebook. I'm not supposed to gossip or rant about her. I'm not supposed to go tell people she's a bad Christian. I'm supposed to restore her gently. And the reason why he says is because we're supposed to carry each other's burdens, and in this way we fulfill the law of Christ. The law of Christ, in addition to the 613 commands that the Jewish people were trying to follow, Jesus said, I give you a new command. Love one another the way that I have loved you. And Jesus loved us so much that he took our burdens on himself and carried them to the cross. That's what we're supposed to do for people who are, we see and we think are dealing with sin. So we're going to talk more about this, but um, here's the key. And this is, this is what we're supposed to remember. And this is going to be key for this week and next week. Love and reconciliation. That's what God did for us. Even when we were enemies, even when he thought we were wrong, even when he knew for a fact that we were separated by him because of our sin, love and reconciliation was his goal. And for those who say, well, I'm not God, no. But Jesus commanded us, we're supposed to love our neighbor. We're supposed to show mercy to those who are different, who are culturally different. And if they are someone who we believe as well, what they're doing is a sin, then we're supposed to restore them gently. That's the goal. So God, uh, I'm going to ask you guys to stand. We pray that this morning... We pray for the offering. We pray for the, uh, just your blessing on us. We pray for um, everyone who just uses their financial and physical and human resources to help us bring your truth and your word to this hurting and broken world who so much needs it. But we pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would guide us. We pray that your strength would be with us. We pray that as we open your word, as we spend time together, as we prepare to sing songs and, and lift you up, we pray that you would be our strength, you would be our truth, and you would be our source this morning. Let everything that we say or do bring glory and honor to you. Open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts to hear your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said amen, amen, amen. Um, this morning, we're going to... Um, continue walking through this series that we started doing, and I'm going to put the scriptures we started with this morning back up in a minute, uh, because again, this whole series, which has gotten a lot of good feedback, some not so good, some people weren't happy with some of the things that we said, but it's the word of God. I mean, I, all I can do is share it. But um, we asked this question, what should the church talk about more often? And we got a lot of feedback from you guys, got a lot of feedback from people online, and one of the questions uh, was this. Someone said, why isn't the church talking more about LGBTQIA issues? And I had to read that because I always mess up the lettering, not trying to be disrespectful to anyone. But here's the thing. The church is talking about it. The problem is with the way that they're doing it. Because they're either over here 
saying, hey, if you're dealing with any of those issues, they're cutting people off, they're telling family members to kick them out of the house and not associate with them and not do anything with them, which is not what the Word of God says at all. That's not what it says. Or they're over here saying, hey, well, if we want to love them, which we should, then we have to say, hey, this is what God allows in his word, which is not the case. That's not what the word of God says either. So people uh, are addressing it from the pulpit, but they're not addressing it in the way that God says. They're either going to one extreme of saying, you know, uh, I've actually seen, and this is sad, videos where people are calling people out from the pulpit in the middle of a Sunday celebration. Why would you do that? That's not what God tells us to do. That's not what God did. Or they're over here, and I have, I have people across that span, family members, friends, who I love and I care about, uh, but they're either, other people are saying, well, if we want to love them, then we have to embrace it and say that God says it's okay. But that's not the truth either, because that's not what God's word says. So we have, this morning, the tough discussion of looking at what does the word of God say? Which is why we're going to go back over these verses. Because remember, God says that while we were enemies, while we were separated from him by our sin, that we were reconciled to him through the death of Jesus Christ. He said that we were enemies. He should have wiped us out because of our sin, but that's not what he did. Instead, he said, hey, I know you have sin, but I'm going to find a way to bring you into relationship with me and help find a way so that your sin is no longer an issue that separates you from me. That's what God models for us when looking at sin in someone's life. Uh, we also looked at this in, in Luke chapter 10, the Good Samaritan, right? Uh, Jesus tells this whole account and he says, hey, there are three people and they are walking and they see someone who's been robbed and the religious folk, two religious folk, they just keep on walking by. But the Samaritan and the person that Jesus was telling this to would have looked at that Samaritan as an enemy. And Jesus says, you know, he took the time, he used his money, he used his resources to help him. And he says, which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers. And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. And again, Jesus said, go do likewise. This is not just a description of what happened. This is not just a prescription, like this will make our lives better if we do it. This is a command from Jesus to go show mercy to those people who you might perceive either as an enemy or different because of their culture or because of their political stance or because of their religion. And then this is the other verse we looked at in Galatians where Paul says, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore the person gently. So here's the thing. We are supposed to acknowledge that sin, anything that's against the Word of God, yeah, that's sin. But we're not supposed to. Does anyone see up there where he said, hey, go kick them out of the church? Anyone see that up there? Does anyone see where he says, go hate on them and yell at them and scream at them and demean them or ridicule them because of their sin? Because I don't see that up there. 
I see Jesus saying, you're supposed to go restore that person gently. Now, the reason why he says, but watch yourselves and you may be tempted, and you guys might not be able to see it, because the next verse says, if anyone thinks that there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. And you can be tempted to look at someone who has a sin and say, I'm better than you because you're dealing with this issue. That's why he says that you who live by the Spirit, I was doing a podcast with Mark where we were talking about this, and he pointed out, hey, before we can call out anyone's sin, we got to make sure we're good within ourselves, that we're standing in the right place before God, and that it's the Holy Spirit that's driving us to say, hey, uh, you know, let's talk about this issue, rather than the culture or some political perspective or even the pastor or denomination. That's God's job. God's the one that guides us in talking to people about, hey, I hear this, this sin in your life and that you're dealing with. How can I you know, help bring you back to a place of reconciliation? Because that's the goal, right? That's the key. That's what we're supposed to focus on. So again, whenever you start talking about stuff like this, it causes anger. It causes division. It causes people to get upset, right? And, and, and here's the thing. I, I get people ask this all the time. Why does God even care? about who people are having romantic intimacy with, trying to keep it clean for the kiddos, <laughs> romantic intimacy with. They're like, why does God even care? Because I'm be honest, I don't care. It's not my job to go looking in you guys' bedrooms to see how you're having romantic intimacy and does it line up with the Word of God. Not my job. But God, just like us, he is a parent and when you're a parent, you want to bring your kids up in truth, which is why weeks ago we started talking about truth, but also you want them to be safe and do things that are right, right? So when we look at a lot of the romantic intimacy issues that may not be in line with God's will, most people jump all the way back to Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Uh, I didn't want to jump into that this morning because there's kiddos in the room and I don't want you guys to have uncomfortable conversations when you go home while they're sitting there with popsicles saying, what is blah, blah, blah. So uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to address it same way from the Bible, but from another perspective, okay? Uh, because whenever we're talking about these issues, one, we have to acknowledge that, yeah, these things are outside of God's um, design, but we also have to be able to explain why. And it's not just because that's what the church says right? Uh, so in the book of Ezekiel, and I'm going to be jumping through a lot of scriptures. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is addressing the nation of Israel. And he's telling them, you guys have strayed so far from God. And he's not saying it because he wants to say it. He's saying it because God says, here is what you're supposed to say to the people. Okay? So uh, he says, the word, of Lord, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable practices, that word detestable, if you look in the King James Version, it's a, an abomination. These are things that God says are just uh, not cool at all, for lack of a better term, all right? So Ezekiel addresses and he, all these analogies, and he says, here's all these things that you, Israel, do along. But then he says this, he says, your older sister was Samaria, talking to Israel, who lived to the north of you with her daughters. And your younger sister, who lived to the south of you with her daughters, was Sodom. You not only followed their ways and copied their detestable practices, but in all your ways, you became more depraved than they. So God is addressing the nation as a whole through the prophet Ezekiel. 
And he's saying, hey, uh, and it wasn't that they were actually his sister. He's using this as an analogy that's saying your neighboring country, Samaria, um, you started doing what she did, and your, your other neighboring country, uh, Sodom, you started doing what they did. Now, here's the thing. He says, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters never did what you and your daughters have done. When he says her daughters, he means like this neighboring nation and all the outla- uh, outlying areas and, and cities and whatever uh, that were associated with Sodom. In this case, uh, the most popular one that we're aware of is Gomorrah, right? So this is the key, though. This is what he says. This was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them, if you have seen. Uh, This is what he says. This was the sin, the things that were outside of God's will, that Sodom did. She and her daughters, meaning the outlying areas, so in this case, Gomorrah, they were arrogant. That's a key. They were arrogant. They thought they were better than other people. They were overfed and unconcerned. It's not that these were poor people scraping to get by. These were, for lack of a better term, six-figure income, rich people who thought they were better than everybody else, and they thought that they did not need to help the poor and needy. They were haughty, meaning they thought that no one else was like them. And they did detestable things before me. The detestable things are the romantic interactions that were outside of God's will, the same gender interactions that they were having. Here is the thing, though. This is what most people read, and if you read the, uh, the account in Sodom, it kind of bears this out. But what most people don't know is that the reason that God addresses the arrogance and unconcern first is because there was a law in Sodom that filtered out to Gomorrah that said, if someone came into town and they had something that you wanted, you could just take it for yourself. Because if they weren't from Sodom, They were beneath us. But if they had stuff that we wanted, we could take their stuff. Now, there was a law at that time throughout the entire region, not just Sodom and Gomorrah, that if someone needed a place to stay, most of us would get online and we look up and we call, you know, an Airbnb or we stay at the Marriott or we do whatever, you know, make sure you have AC in the pool, all that stuff. What they would do is they would go and they would stand with their luggage uh, and their packages and stuff in the middle of town. And they would wait for someone to come by that says, hey, are you looking for a place to stay? And they would say, yeah, I'm I'm from out of town. I need a place to stay. They'd be like, well, you could come stay with me. Now, that was throughout the entire region in that day. But in Sodom, it said someone could come by and say, hey, are you looking for a place to stay? They're like, yeah, from out of town. I'm like, you're from out of town? I like your luggage. I'm taking that. Or if, for example, if Christy and I were, were, were sitting downtown trying to find a place to stay, and Gary and Karen said, hey, you guys looking for a place to stay? We got an extra room. And I'm like, great, can we come stay with you? They're like, sure. So we come stay with them. But if Joe drives by and sees, oh, they got a nice car with out-of-state plates in front of Gary and Karen's house, that means someone's from out of town, I'm going to take that car. And I'm just going to go, I'm going to jack it, I'm going to take it home, it's mine. That's what they used to do. 
And the reason why God addresses this is because all of these things kind of tie together. The haughtiness, the arrogance, when you start looking at people and looking down on them and thinking you're better than them, then you start thinking, I can do whatever I want to them. And then once those inhibitions are released, it creates a circle of, of all of these um, attitudes and characteristics. And it comes from living outside of God's will. So they did all of this, and then they not only looked at that, that's when they started looking at, well, if we're not going to live inside of God's will, then we don't have to confine our romantic intimacy to God's will either. None of it has to be within God's will. And they proceeded over and over and over. And that's the account uh, that you read about in uh, the book of Genesis. Now, all of these characteristics go hand in hand because the sexual issues that were outside of God's will were a direct result of living in a moral lifestyle that was outside of God's will. They had just decided, I'm, I'm just not going to live in accordance with God's will. That means I don't have to treat people the way God says. I don't have to treat their stuff the way God says. And I don't have to conduct myself the way that God says. And over and over and over, every time you see sexual immorality addressed in the Bible, it has all of these attitudes together. And that's not saying that every person who's engaged in sexual activity outside of God's will is a bad person, mean person, and wants to demean other people. It is saying that once you take one step from one thing outside of God's will, it's a lot easier to take another step with another thing. So if I say, hey, I don't have to confine my romantic intimacy to within God's will, then it's a lot easier to say, hey, I don't have to confine the way I talk to people within God's will. I don't have to confine the way I treat people within God's will. I don't have to confine anything I do to within God's will, which is why almost every time you see this addressed in Scripture, it's not just one thing. It's all addressed together, which is why every time you see within a culture or a society, um, one, uh, uh, you don't see just one of these things happening. You see all of them. We don't just see violence increasing. We see sexual depravity increasing. We see violence increasing. We see mistreatment of other people increasing because once it's easy to say, I'm not limiting myself to this, it's a lot easier to say, or that, or that. Or that. And every time you see these addressed in Scripture, they're addressed together. Uh, and we're going to jump through again a bunch of Scripture. In Romans, Paul says, let us, he's talking to Christians. This is to Christians. None of this are to people who claim, I don't want anything to do with your God. Because then they're not trying to live by God's standards. This is to Christians. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in carousing and drunkenness and sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissensions and jealousy. He doesn't just address sexual immorality outside of God's will, but other activities outside of God's will. And then we see in Galatians chapter 5, the acts of the flesh, the acts and things that we do. If we didn't have the Holy Spirit of God, anyone see what's, uh, what's called Lord of the Flies? Anyone had to read the book in high school? I cheated and got the cliff notes, so I don't know what the book actually says, but the movie, the older one and a newer one, and I think they all use kids, show because kids who are at a certain age where they haven't been fully taught things, just kind of like, well, this makes sense to me. And in that 
All of these kids say, what makes sense to me is beating the others, taking what I want, and doing what I want to other people. Because the acts of the flesh, without God's Holy Spirit guiding us, are obvious. There's sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft. And he also says hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions in envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. And he's saying this, he's writing this to Christian folk, to church folks, saying, hey, if you choose, now it's not saying, you know what, if someone makes a mistake, does something, gets jealous, shows anger, whatever, that God says you're out. But it's the people who say, I'm going to commit to this type of lifestyle. God says, you're not going to be a part of my kingdom. I don't want people who are like mistreating others in my kingdom. And here's the thing. A lot of people get mad at God for that, but we all have rules about what happens in our house, right? How many people, I mean, it's not a bad thing. How many people have rules like you got to take your shoes off when you come in my house? Yeah. I mean, you paid for the floor. You got to take your shoes off when you come to my house. Some people have rules like you got to put your own dishes in the kitchen. Don't wait for me to do it. You got to take them. You got to put them in the dishwasher yourself. Some people have weird rules like don't fart in the kitchen. Whatever your rules are, everyone has their own set of rules. God has his rules too, and it's his house. And we're free to say, hey, I don't want to abide by your rules, God. God's not trying to kidnap anyone or force anyone to do it. Um, in the book of Ephesians, Paul writes, among you, again, to Christians, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed. These are improper for God's holy people, nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. And what usually happens is people focus on sexual immorality, they forget the greed, they forget the obscenity, they forget talking down to people. God says, hey, these things are also out of place. In the, in the book of Jude, Jude writes this, in a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns. So when we read in Ezekiel where it said her daughters, it wasn't just Sodom, it wasn't just Samora, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversions. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. And a lot of people ask, well, why does God, I mean, care so much about the romantic intimacy that people have, because he has rules. And whether we like it or not, those are his rules. And the reason why, it, because we said the, the goal is reconciliation, and people say, well, why didn't God focus on reconciliation with Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns? They are an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. They willingly chose and said, hey, we're not going to live by God's rules we're so, this is the way we're going to live, rich, haughty, well-doing, we don't care about others, you're beneath us, we're going to take what we want, we're going to do what we want, we're going to infringe our, how can I say this kids in the room, ourselves on other people, romantic intimacy, even if they don't want it, and when we do, we're going to do all of our romantic intimacy outside of God's will. And so God uses them example to say, hey, yeah, reconciliation is the goal, but if you're not willing to be reconciled, here's, here's, here's the result. And just in case anyone thinks I'm taking that out of context, this is God talking. 
in the book of Revelation, he says those who are victorious will inherit all this. The all this is he says there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth and a new city. And he says, I will be their God. They will be my children. But the cowardly, those who are not willing to stand up and say, I don't care what you say, thus saith the Lord. The unbelieving, those who say, well, I want nothing to do with your God, that's fine. God's not going to kidnap you. The vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. God makes it crystal clear that those that choose, and again, what most people do is they focus on the sexual immorality. And they skip all this other stuff. They skip those who, who worship demons, those, the murderers. They skip the liars. And this isn't saying that if you're on your way to lunch and you, your spouse cooks something for you and they say, is it good? And you're like, you want to say this sucks, but you say, yeah, it's pretty good. That doesn't mean that you're not. These are people who say, you know what? I'm going to commit to this life and living my life this way rather than living my life God's way. And you're free to do so. But it's God's kingdom, God's new earth. There's only two places to go, eternity with God or eternity separated from God. And if you choose eternity separated from God, God is going to honor that. He's going to say, okay, that's your choice. That's your will. I'm not going to like pull out a belt and spank you. Anyone, no, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you get spanked. That's a whole other conversation. But uh, you spank you, I'm not going to like do all this stuff to you. I'm going to allow you and I'm going to honor your choice that you want to spend eternity separated from me. A lot of people don't want to hear this. This is the truth. But here's the other problem. A lot of people aren't saying this with the love and grace that we're supposed to say it, right? Uh, because here's the thing, those who engage in sexual activities outside of God's will, they're not supposed to be treated like the enemy, which is what the church has done. The church has said, oh, you're like that, you need to get out. They've called them out, they've demeaned them. There were more messages preached by pastors during Pride Month about sexual immorality than any other time of the year because they don't preach it any other time of the year, because they're not trying to share God's word. They're trying to support an agenda, and they're not trying to show grace and love and reconciliation. They're trying to show hate and bigotry. This is one of the reasons why, and I said this weeks ago, we waited well till well after Pride Month to bring this message up, because we didn't want this truth, the truth of God's word, to get caught up in all the hate and all the anger that people are showing uh, around this topic, okay? So here's the thing. Again, just a reminder. When we do address sexual sin, just like we talked about, Romans 5.10, love and reconciliation is the goal. Our goal is not to try to get them out of the congregation. Our goal is not to try to call them out. Our goal is to show them the truth of God's word so that they can experience his love and his grace. And we're supposed to be good, merciful Samaritans when we do it. We're supposed to take the time to interact and engage, to show them the mercy that Jesus tells us to show, and it's supposed to be gentle. We are definitely 100% all the time and every time call out sin. But if we're not doing it with the grace of God, 
if we're not doing it with the goal of reconciliation, then I can almost guarantee you nobody's listening. Nobody wants to be yelled at, screamed at, demeaned, ridiculed. Nobody wants to be a part of some political agenda. Nobody wants to experience that hurt. And I say this because here's the thing. Every single time Jesus addressed sexual sin, he showed love, he showed mercy, and he was gentle in addressing their sin. He definitely, 100%, addressed it, called it sin. But he showed love. He showed mercy. And he was gentle addressing sin. Two real quick scenarios. Uh, does anyone remember the account of the woman that was caught in adultery? I mean, the, you can't get more sexual sin than being dragged out of the act and hauled in front of somebody to say, they just sinned. I mean, there's, there's no excuse you can give. And it's not just one person. It was a group of people that dragged this woman out. And, and here's what happened, though. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, who are they? Has no one condemned you? Because all the people that dragged her in front of Jesus said, stone her. That's what the law says, stone her, call her out, judge her right now. And Jesus said again, using that, that, that verse from Galatians, you know, the Holy Spirit filled people. He said, let him who is without sin cast the first stone. Because if you're, if you're calling out her sin, Jesus said, I have the right to call out yours. So before you judge her, are you sinless? Are you dealing with the lying, the haughtiness, the pride, and all the other things that are associated with all those verses? And every one of them left. And Jesus said, hey, has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. Right? Not our job to condemn. But Jesus declared, go now and leave your life a sin. It is our job to call out sin. Even though everyone else tried to humiliate and demean her, Jesus showed love and mercy and still addressed, hey, you know what? What you're doing is wrong, but I'm not going to condemn you and judge you like the people who dragged you in front of me did. Uh, anyone remember uh, the woman by the well that Jesus had this conversation with? Yeah, Jesus, uh, uh, and here's the thing, I love the way Jesus did that, because you know where that took place as well? In Samaria in the place that people didn't want to go to because they thought everyone that lives in that town, they're our enemy because of their culture, because of the way they think, because of the, uh, their religious belief, because of their political belief, and because of their race, because they weren't pure 100% Jew, they were mixed. And so people are like, they're our enemy. We don't even go to that town. And Jesus told his disciples, hey, you know what? I need to go there. So they headed to Samaria, right? Uh, Jesus has an interaction with this woman, uh, and the woman says to him, he tells her, hey, I can give you water, and he's talking about himself, a spiritual interaction, so you'll never thirst again. The thirst he was talking about was not the same thirst she thought. She said, uh, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water, and he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And as we're going to see, Jesus wasn't just addressing, he, he was basically saying, hey, how can I put this? Um, you have a problem searching for fulfillment in romantic intimacy with men. You've done it five times before, and the guy that you're doing it with now, and you don't make a full commitment to each one, 
which is why you end up with the next one and the next one and the next one and the next one and the guy you're with now, you're just doing the same thing. And look at her response, because I love her response. Then, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me, and these are her words, everything I ever did, could this be the Messiah? Jesus didn't tell her everything she ever did. Jesus made it crystal clear, you've gone from this guy to this guy to this guy. You kind of have a problem looking for intimacy and fulfillment with men. She acknowledges, that's all I've ever been doing. I've been creating these romantic or intimate relationships that are outside of God's will because I'm looking for romance from these people. These are her words, and she acknowledged Jesus was right. But because Jesus didn't demean her, because Jesus didn't call her out, because Jesus didn't kick her out of the congregation, or because Jesus didn't treat her like an enemy the way everyone else in Israel did, she was able to go tell the townspeople and many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. Now, this, what I'm about to say, me speculating, Scripture doesn't say this. I believe the reason they probably believed in him because she said he told me everything I ever did is because they knew of her sexual relationships, small town. But they also knew, I got some stuff in my life that if it came to light, people would demean me. People would talk about me. People would not allow me in their congregation. But they came running to a place where there was someone speaking biblical truth into their life that wasn't demeaning them, that wasn't kicking them out, that wasn't like, hey, we're going to make a political agenda out of you, but was just showing them, hey, this is sin, but I'm going to love you, and I'm going to gently try to reconcile you into a relationship with God because that's what the church is called to do. When we address sexual sin, which we are supposed to address it, we're supposed to do it in a loving way with reconciliation as the goal. We're supposed to be good, merciful Samaritans, loving them like we love our neighbor and like we love ourselves. And we're supposed to be gentle in our addressing of their sin, not putting ourselves on a pedestal and not putting them down. I'm going to ask the band to come up, and we're going to spend a moment in prayer before we continue. I'm going to ask you guys to stand. God, we all have people in our lives that are engaged in any number of the sins that we just talked about and that we addressed. We all have people in our lives whom, whom we love, and we pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would, just like we said, that when we're addressing sexual sin, we would do it with love, with reconciliation, with God as the goal. That we would be like the Good Samaritan and show mercy to them despite the differences in our culture. And that as we're addressing this sin, we would do it in a gentle way that doesn't demean them, that doesn't ridicule them, that doesn't try to put us on a pedestal above them, but lets them know that we're doing it because we love them. And most importantly, it lets them know that we're doing it because of the love that you have for them. The same love that you've shown to us and so many others is what we want to show to them. And we pray that we do it by the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Amen.